Today we are starting a new series in the book of Hebrews. Uh, As part of my, so I don't know how many of you know this, I'm here in in residence as a church planter, and my wife and I are trying to start a church in the Nazareth area uh, next year sometime, and as part of my ordination process, so I can officially tack reverend in front of my name, I had to design a sermon series, and Adam was gracious enough to, to let me do that here. So today we get to kick off a series in Hebrews. I'm super excited about it. I studied this book uh, in college, and it's, it's a great book. Um, it's a great letter of encouragement to struggling believers. I'm super excited about what we're going to learn in the series, but I want to start by, by helping set the context a little bit. So coming off of uh, July 4th and our, our Independence Day, I'm going to set the context by talking about something that happened at the start of the Revolutionary War. So... The Boston Massacre happened, I think, in, in 1770, and it sort of started this, this, this rage in the country against Britain. And then in 1773, you know, there's been this, this taxation without representation in the country, and the, and the, or in the, in the colonies, and the colonies are getting more and more irritated with Britain taxing them without having representation in Parliament. So there starts being this... this slow uprising happening within the people, in, the, in these, these colonialists saying, we can't stand for this anymore. And there were people in the country called loyalists who were still loyal to the throne of Britain, who were saying, well, we can't upset the mother country. Like, we can't do that, or we're going to have serious problems for ourselves. So there's this, this battle of kingdoms starting to happen. So what was happening was they were taxing tea heavily, coming into the colonies. So in 1773, in September and October, Britain redid the tax law and said, we're going to send seven ships full of tea to the colonies, and then we're going to tax the snot out of the colonies. We're doing it anyway. So seven ships come out of Britain. One goes to Charleston, one goes to Philadelphia, one goes to New York, and four end up in Boston. So the one gets to Charleston, and the people rebel and basically say, we're not accepting this tea. You can turn it around and you can take it right back, but if you leave it here, we're just going to take it and we're not going to pay the taxes. And that's what ends up happening. The one comes into Philadelphia, and if you, if you read the, little, the pamphlet that they printed, they threatened the, the ship captain and said, we're going to tar and feather you. You better fly back to Britain now, but do it without the feathers. Like, just go now. Be warned. So he did. He turned the ship around and left. Same thing happened in New York. So now three ships leave, or, or, or the, the, the tea is taken without paying taxes. But the whole time this is happening, there's this this struggle going on between people who want to see the colonies come to fruition as a country and the people who want to stay loyal to the throne. It's breaking up families, husbands, wives, parents, fathers, and sons. They're fighting over which kingdom do we want to be a part of. And then finally, as you know, it culminates in Boston where they they fight with this captain for days and the, the governor was a loyalist. And he said, we're going to accept this tea and you're going to pay the taxes. And they end up, you know, uh, John Adams or Sam Adams ends up you know, having this revolt happens. They go out, they take the tea, the Boston Tea Party happens, they throw it into the sea and they're like, we're not going to pay the taxes. And it sets the stage for the colonies declaring independence in July in the next year. But what was happening, and the reason I'm drawing this parallel, is people were torn between two kingdoms. If you can imagine that the struggle that was happening was they wanted freedom, but they knew it would come at the expense of potentially their lives, their livelihoods, their children. So like I said, it was breaking up families and there's this struggle happening and and we know how it turned out. So please hear one thing. I I am not spiritualizing the revolution, okay? 
let those who have ears hear. <laughs> but I'm drawing parallels to the book of Hebrews because what's happening in the book of Hebrews is the author is writing to this struggling group of Jewish background believers. Jews who had come to faith in Jesus. And the author is writing to them, encouraging them, saying, you are going to be torn between these two kingdoms, between the old way and the new way. What are you going to do? Now, what you need to know about the book of Hebrews is it was written probably somewhere before the temple was destroyed. There's no mention of it happening here. So we believe that it was written before 70 AD, so maybe somewhere between 50 and 60 AD. There's some persecutions that are mentioned, but not that you want any persecution, but if you read it, the author is basically saying it was sort of light persecution, like they lost their homes, but they weren't killed. Like, this is a better persecution than, I guess, them being murdered. So they think that this happened during one of the first... Uh, first persecutions that happened to Jews and Christians was somewhere between 50 and 60 AD. So they placed the letter somewhere in there. It was a pluralistic society. There were different religions vying for attention of the people. There were different government forces at work between Rome and between Israel. And, you know, Christianity's on the rise. And anyway, so there's a pluralistic society, lots going on. It's similar to ours. And, and, and sort of this, this anger was starting to build up towards. Christians. And, and what ends up happening is Rome kicks out Jews and kicks out Christians who were seen as a sect of Jews, Judaism at that point. So there's all this persecution happening, this struggle happening. We don't really know who the author is of Hebrews. Uh, there's, there's debate about uh, whether it was Apollos, who you can read about in the book of Acts. Uh, and in Corinthians, great you know, leader in the early church who was trained by Priscilla and Aquila. You can read about them. Paul talks about them often. There's a good chance that maybe they contributed to the writing of this letter. And maybe there's no name attached to it because it was an early female writer. And the church didn't know what to do with that back then. There's a good chance maybe it was Barnabas, one of Paul's good friends. He was a Levite. He understood Levitical law and the priesthood. And that's written a lot about in here. So there's different options about who this is. But regardless... Hebrews makes it into Scripture because of its own validity, because of its worth, because of its Christ-centered, its gospel nature, and its encouragement to the church. And it's quoted by early church fathers, so it's, it's been validated and, and put into to Scripture. So if at any point during this talk or in this series we say he in regards to the author, just know that I mean all of those things I just said. It's any of those potential authors, any of those potential writers, but the point is the letter itself. The point is this, this battle of kingdoms that starts to happen between Christians not knowing if they should stay or if they should return to their old way of doing things. And the book, the book is bookended and encouraged in the middle for people to not fall away, to not drift away from Christ. And over the next you know, eight weeks, we're going to look at all these different things and the different reasons that the author says to not drift away. One of the reasons I love this letter is because 13 different times, at least in the NIV, the author says, therefore. He makes this case for, here's how great Jesus is, therefore live like this. This is what the new covenant looks like, therefore live like this. And it's all these therefores over and over again, meaning to me that there's implications for the disciples' lives and for our lives Today, Therefore, we apply these things that we've been talking about. So the main point of Hebrews, you know, this whole series is Jesus only 
is what will sustain us and guide us on the long journey of faith into the rest of God, the Sabbath of God, the the eternal kingdom in God. Only Jesus will sustain us on the long journey of faith. Why do we need to know this? Well, every day we are faced with questions. I don't mean questions from the world, I don't mean questions from outside, but they come. But questions in our own lives of where do I get my authority from? Who has authority over my life? Where do I get wisdom from? Who has the answers that I need to go about my life at my job, with my spouse, or, you know, with my friends, at school? Questions like, is it worth it? Is it worth it to keep leaning into this kingdom that Jesus has promised me? Or maybe it's better to do it my way. Maybe it's better to go back to the way I used to do it. So that's what we're going to look at over the, the course of this series, but really landing on Jesus only. Today, when we look at chapter 1 and a little bit of chapter 2, the author starts to lay out the reasons why we should stay committed to Jesus. And the author talks about you know, Jesus being greater than angels. But the, the point being, and he says it in chapter 2 in the beginning, don't drift from the belief in Jesus only. Because things will come along and try to pull us away from that from that belief, but don't, don't drift from the belief in Jesus only. So if you have a copy of the scriptures and you want to turn to Hebrews, we're going to read chapter 1 and a little bit into chapter 2. And what we're going to look at is what would we drift from, if this is the warning to not drift, what would we drift from, why would we drift away from it, and then what do we do in light of that? So if you want, you can read with me here. I'm going to read through this whole chapter. It's a short one. Chapter 1 of Hebrews. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. What the author starts doing here is quoting from the book of Psalms. And, and he's quoting these, these sort of messianic psalms, these psalms about, about the king who was a, a, a type of Messiah to the people of Israel. And these are all passages that the early church would use to, to support why they believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In verse 6, And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil 
of joy, which that's from Psalm 45. Just read that Psalm sometime and look at the overtones of, of the Messiah to come and, and, and how God so wired Israel that, that salvation would, would be through the king. Verse 10, he also says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to those who will inherit salvation? So the author's laying out here how, how, how look, in the past, the, these angels delivered, okay, through prophets, through, through writers, they delivered the message of God. But angels are not what is to be worshipped. Look what he goes on to say in verse, or chapter 2. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, meaning the things that have come in the past, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So the first question is, what would we drift away from? Right? If, if this warning comes in chapter 2 and he's saying, therefore, don't drift away, we need to be careful to pay attention to what we've heard, what have we heard? Right? Well, if you go back and look at verse 1, verse 1 through 4 contains so much deep truths about God and about Jesus. The first thing we might drift away from is that Jesus is the final word from God, the final authority from God. The author says, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through prophets. So he's saying, in the past, okay, everything that has happened in the past, God spoke to us through these prophets, through our forefathers in, in, in uh, Judaism. Then in verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now this word last days, that what they would understand that to mean is that means when the Messiah would come and everything after. So what what the author has just set up is that everything in the past, God spoke to us through the prophets, through our forefathers. Then now and forever forward in these last days, he has spoken to us through Jesus, his son. Jesus is the final word. He is the greatest authority that God has sent to relay God's message to us. So he's setting this up. That might be something we would drift away from. The second thing we can see it in verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. What the author is saying is Jesus is God. Jesus is the son of God. He is God. He is the exact representation of God's character on earth. So if you want to see God, you look to Jesus. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. John says the same exact thing, that Jesus is the exact representation of God on earth. That word there really means like an imprint on a, a, when they would make coins, you know, he's the exact imprint of God on earth. So the author's trying to raise up 
this idea, the value that Jesus is the final word. He is the image of God on earth. That he is unique, he's divine, he's worthy to be worshipped. And then in the rest of verse 3, he says he's sustaining everything by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down. So something else that, that... he's warning the the people not to drift away from is the idea that Jesus is the final purification for sin. That up to that point, the Jews had been trying all these different things to be purified from sin that God had laid out through the Old Covenant. And now he's saying Jesus is the final authority. Jesus is the image of God and he is the final purification for sin. He's the only purification for sin that is needed. Don't drift away from that. And then he finishes verse 3 by saying, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Or in verse 13, to which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What he was warning the Hebrew people to not walk away from, to not drift away from, is that Jesus is victorious. That Jesus has overcome and that Jesus has sat down at the right hand of God. So he's reiterating that Jesus is the final authority because when a king sits down, it's finished. It's done. He has spoken, he has acted, and now he sits and he rests. So the things that he was warning people not to drift away from is that Jesus is the final word, God's image, purification for sins, and that it's finished. That Jesus is victorious, eternally at the right hand of God. And then when you look at 13, that verse there, he says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Meaning, he will continue to defeat the enemies up until the very end when he comes back to judge and will judge the enemies of God and will make them a footstool for his feet. In short, this chapter, what it's proclaiming, is Jesus only. He is warning these people who are living in a pluralistic society, scared, persecuted, wondering if they should go back. He's saying, don't drift away from the key truths that Jesus only is the final word of God. That Jesus only is the Messiah. That Jesus sits on the throne victorious. Now, why would people drift away from that? Right? Like, it's Sunday morning. We're in church. We're worshiping. Everything's good. We're like, yeah, we believe that. I I, I give assent to that. I, I believe that. So why would people drift away from that? Why did this author feel the need to encourage people, not just here, but over and over again in this letter, to not drift away from these truths? So I want to tell you a story. Something that would have been very familiar to Jewish background believers, very familiar to us as a church. If you look at the history of Israel, and you go from like Exodus 19 through probably 33, 34 we see the story of Moses leading the people out of slavery. So remember this with me, right? Picture the Jewish people, they have been stuck in slavery for 400 years in Egypt. They have this tyrannous leader in in Pharaoh who is, you know, they're, they're, they're making bricks, they don't have enough food, they don't have enough water, they're not being well taken care of, and they're crying out for God to send a deliverer. And God sends Moses. And Moses comes and he leads the people out of slavery. He leads them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is squashed in the water, and they're victorious on the other side. 
And in chapter 19, we see that God makes a covenant with the people. Through Moses, he says, I will be your God. You will be my treasured possession if you obey me. If you follow my decrees. So this beginning of this covenant starts to happen. And they're on the journey to the promised land, promised so many years earlier to Abraham, their forefather. And they're waiting to go into this great land of God's provision and his presence that we talk about all the time here. And then something happens, right? God says to Moses and Aaron and 70 leaders, he says, come up the mountain to me. And God's glory descends on Mount Sinai in a cloud. And Moses, Aaron, and these 70 leaders, they go up the mountain and it says that they see God. They see his presence and they live. And then God calls Moses further up. Moses alone goes up into God's presence and it says that he was there for 40 days and 40 nights up in this cloud somewhere. Meanwhile, the people who had just been given this covenant, obey me and you'll be my treasure possession, they're down on the desert floor somewhere, like looking up at this mountain in terror. It's shaking, there's thunder rumbling, you know, there's smoke, there's clouds, and Moses, their fearless leader, has just disappeared up into the clouds. So if you look at what they do, they drift away. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read a couple verses from chapter 32 in Exodus. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. Listen, this next verse is great. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Like, this poor guy. Think about all he's been through. He's up in the presence of God and the people are like, mm, we don't know where he went. How about you make us some gods? Like, we're a fickle people. I mean, this is what we do, right? We have this tendency to drift away. So Aaron answers them. He says, take off your gold. And they give him some gold and he puts it in a fire. And, you know, he says later to Moses, out came a calf. Like, I don't know, out came this golden calf. And and the people in verse 6, it says, so the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. They started worshiping this thing. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. They're having a party. Moses leads them out of Egypt, gone for 40 days. They don't know what to do, so they make a golden calf and they have a party. Like, this is, this is humanity at its best or at its worst, depending on how you want to look at it. So why did they drift? All right? This author in Hebrews is encouraging his, his, his listeners, his readers, to not drift. But we know that we do it. This is another example of it. Why did they drift? Well, first of all, they drifted because they couldn't see Moses anymore. They panicked. They couldn't see him. Their fearless leader was invisible to them and they didn't know what was happening despite the fact that he'd gone into the presence of God. We don't know what happened to him. Another reason they drifted is that they wanted protection. They wanted protection. Look at verse, uh, verse 1 in chapter 32 if you have it. If you don't, I'll read it. They said, Aaron, come make us gods who will go before us. We're worried out here. We're scared what's going to happen with the enemies. We don't know this land. Make us gods who will go before us and protect us, Aaron. We're afraid. We don't know what's going to happen. Make us a god that will go before us. And and meanwhile, God has promised and promises again, "I, I will go before you. I will send an angel who will go before you. But the people panic. They drift because they wanted protection. 
And I would say they drifted because they wanted religion. They wanted something tangible that they could do while they were waiting for Moses. It says they make this golden calf, they start worshiping it, they sacrifice, they get up early in the morning, they work real hard, they they bring fellowship offerings, and they start worshiping this golden calf. They wanted a religious uh, program that they could control. They wanted to know that they were doing something. They didn't want to just wait. They couldn't just wait for Moses to come back. So they wanted something to do. Man, this is such a human tendency. And finally... They wanted revelry, not endurance. Church, hear that. They, they, they wanted to party. They wanted to, to hang out. They just wanted fun. They didn't actually want to endure all of 40 days waiting for Moses to come back. They sat down to eat. They got up to drink. They got up to indulge in revelry. And this is one of many lack of belief moments in Israel's history that eventually leads them to wandering in the desert for 40 years. We talked about that in the book of Joshua, remember? They, they end up not believing God again and they, and they end up wandering in the desert waiting to get into the promised land. It is such human tendency to not want to endure, to not want to wait. It's human tendency to fall into legalism, to fall into moralism, to fall into religion as opposed to true worship of God. Um, When I was younger, uh, I forget what year it was, but my parents were going out. I had a younger brother. My older sister, I think, might have already been out of the house. I had a younger brother. He's like four or five years younger than me. My parents were leaving for uh, for the evening, and they put me in charge. My brother's a good kid. I was a good kid. So my parents trusted me, and they probably laid out rules for the evening. I knew what was expected of me in their absence. And a couple hours went by, and this was back uh, when pay-per-view was a thing. Like, you had a cable box with the funky little remote, and you could type in a code, and you could order a movie. So me and my brother decide that we are going to rent Austin Powers when it came out. Um, it's a hilarious movie. I don't recommend it to kids. Um, I shouldn't have been watching it. Like, I knew, like, I wasn't allowed to watch The Simpsons, okay? Like, my dad was not going to be happy if I was watching Austin Powers. So, we rent this movie, and me and my brother are dying laughing, because it's hilarious. We're just, we're laughing so hard, and I thought I had timed it so that the movie would be over before my parents got home. Like, I don't know what I thought was going to happen with the bill. Like, I didn't pay the cable bill. <laughs> I didn't process that. So sure enough, they come home right at a very inopportune time, like always happens, when, when he, Austin Powers says some incredibly inappropriate thing, and I'm like, ah, my dad is looking at me, and I'm like, I'm sorry, I didn't know, but this is what we do, right? Like when we have to wait, when we, when we have to endure, when we have to obey, our natural tendency is to just say like, well, what can I get away with? What, what can I do? they won't be home for a while. And this is just, this is what we do. This is what the Israelites do, and this is what we do just as people. We drift. So the Israelites drift away from God, from his covenant with them. Because they want protection, because they want religion, because they're scared, and all these various reasons. So, apply that today. All right, we're not wandering around in the desert. 
We're not at Mount Sinai anymore. But this author in Hebrews is warning the people, and I'm exhorting us today to not drift. How might we drift in similar ways? Well, think about it. Jesus, if there was any theme that, that Jesus went after so much, it was this, this theme of a new exodus. That he had been called to lead the people out of slavery, just like Moses. And he's going to lead the people out of slavery into the promised land. A land of rest, a land of God's presence, a land of God's provision. A journey into the new heaven and new earth. And he makes a new covenant with them in his blood. And then he goes up a mountain and he disappears into the clouds. We are in no different, really, of a situation. And we stand waiting for the return of Jesus. So how might we drift? Well, going back to those first things we talked about, we might drift away from the fact that Jesus is the final word from God. We might drift from that. Think, think about this. Jesus is the final word from God, the final speaking authority from God that everything else should come under. Now, when you go through your daily lives, it's Wednesday this coming week, Right? And you've got some problem that you come up against, a personality conflict, relationship conflict, your job, whatever. Who or what is the first person that you turn to? The first thing that you turn to for authority? Think about that. In your struggles, is, is the first person you turn to Jesus and his final word, his authority? You know, we're constantly choosing other sources of wisdom. There are plenty of good books out there, self-help things, counsel, all these things. I'm not saying any of those are bad, but are we ultimately putting them under the authority of Jesus? Are we running everything through his words, through his promises, and our identity wrapped up in him? Because I know oftentimes what I will do is something bad will happen to me, or I'll be trying to figure out a situation, and I'll go to my wife. Now, hopefully, in her wisdom, she speaks the gospel back to me. But oftentimes, I find that we'll panic each other, right? We'll go to other people. We'll go to talk shows. We'll go to the radio. We'll go to all politics. We'll go to all these different things looking for answers when Jesus says, and this author is saying, he is the final authority. He is who we should go to as the final word from God. We also drift from God's, from Jesus as God's image. Jesus is the only thing worthy to be worshipped. He's God's representation that came to earth. He's the only thing worthy to be worshipped. And, and the flip side of that is that we tend to worship idols. There are other things that we go to. You know, idols, I know we look at this as like this Old Testament word, but we all have them in some way or another. We make, we make idols out of, out of culture. We make idols out of performance, out of success, out of money, out of relationship. We go on and on. Things that we value more than we value Jesus as God. Here's a big one. We drift away from Jesus as the purification for sins. This is huge, particularly in the church. We go after this all the time. Because it's so ingrained in church culture that we, we move away from Jesus being the final purification for sin and we move into religious behavior. 
we move into, how can I make myself right? How can I get God to love me again? How can I perform in such a way that he thinks I'm good? Instead of remembering that he's the purification for sin. He has taken care of it. He has said, I love you. I love you. I love you. There's nothing that you can do. You have been purified. So the question is, what are you occasionally adding back in to the gospel? When you come up against problems in your life, when you have questions, what are you adding back in to try to gain God's approval? And finally, we drift away from Jesus as the victorious one sitting at the right hand of God. This is another one that is, that is huge in our culture. Jesus is the final authority sitting at the right hand of God in authority, waiting to come back to judge the earth. And yet we still fear man. We still fear what people think of us. We fear our friends' thoughts about us. We, we fear one another. We fear our families and what they'll think of us. We fear what our bosses will think of us. And we forget, we drift away from the fact that Jesus is on the throne. He has declared victory and we are in him. So no matter what happens to us, no matter what people think of us, we find ourselves seated at the right hand of God when we are in union with him. And can I just speak to people in the room who might be on the fence about Christ as a whole? Whether you worship Jesus or not, you still do all of these things. You still worship other things. All people fear man and fear one another. All, all people have a religion of some sort, some worldview that they espouse, that they go after trying to, to win approval of the gods of some sort and try to control their outcome. So this is not even just a, a Christian thing. This is a, a human problem. But as a group of Christ followers, we say, well, ultimately the answer is found in Jesus. The answer to all of those questions is found in Jesus. Okay. So what we'll drift from, why we might do it, how do we not drift? Right? This is the warning that comes through so strong over and over again in this book, is to not throw away these teachings, not walk away from them, not accept strange teachings, don't drift. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus over and over again. Well, that, my friends, to me, is where this whole book points to. Is in the beginning of chapter 12. Verse, really, I mean, you just read the first couple of verses. This is what it says. If you look in chapter 12, this is one of the greatest pieces of scripture in my mind. The author goes through listing all these great saints of the faith, these these amazing faithful leaders, and he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all these people that have gone before, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author of and perfecter of our faith, the beginning and the completer of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There is so much to unpack in there, but I want to just go after a couple things. This is all about what you believe at your core. 
This is all about whether or not your identity is truly found in Jesus. It's not about what you do. It's about what you believe. And the author here is saying, if you want to not drift, keep your eyes focused on Jesus only. Look at what he did and follow him. So think with me about a few different things in ways that, that Jesus stayed focused on God. Remember, Jesus himself wandered for 40 days in the desert. Not because of unbelief, but because of his belief. He wanders for 40 days in the desert and, and, and Satan comes and tempts him. He tempts him with food. He tempts him with glory. He tempts him with his own life, with safety. And Jesus stays true to the Father and doesn't drift from being aligned with God's plan. He keeps believing in God's plan for his life, for his ministry. keeps believing in God as the only one worthy to be feared. And he did that because he had his eyes on God and he had his eyes on us. He had the cross before him. He knew what was coming, but he stayed focused on God and on us. Think about Jesus in the garden. He knows he's being betrayed by Judas. He knows that he's going to a terrible trial. Yet, instead of taking the route out where he could call people, call angels to come and rescue him, he stays focused on the cross, despising its shame, and goes to the cross on behalf of a broken world. He does not drift from what God has called him to. Jesus on the cross, he's mocked and people are saying, can't you call angels to come and rescue you? He could have, but he stays true to what God has called him to. Church, what this author is calling these readers to and what he's calling us to is to maintain our focus on Jesus. Maintain our focus on what he did, not on what we do or accomplish, but on him and on what he did and keep our eyes fixed on him. But something important there is, is he, he says, throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Now, this is not moralism. This is not religion. This is not a list of do's and don'ts. This is saying, throw off that stuff that's clouding your beliefs about who Jesus is. It's going to take work. It's going to take effort. Now, church, if the New Testament is clear about anything, it's that you don't earn your salvation. But you do work at keeping union with Christ. Does that make sense? You're not going to lose it, but you can certainly grow it. You can go into a deeper relationship with Jesus. You can believe him more and more in more aspects of your life. You're not earning his love, but you're growing in it. But that takes making decisions. That takes cooperating with the Holy Spirit. That takes being in community and allowing people to speak into your life and say, yeah, you know what, that one part about my life, that is totally jacked up. I'm not believing Jesus for my identity. Thank you for showing me that. Let me throw off that sin that's entangling me. It's working to maintain union with Christ, not earning it. In the coming weeks, we are going to look at the rest of this book and look at the rest of this letter, whatever you want to call it, and look at all the ways that Jesus is supreme. Next week, we heard, you know, Alan's coming. He's going to do a great job talking about Jesus as our brother who came in flesh, who understands our situation because he walked in it and walks in it himself. And we're going to look at the way that Jesus is supreme to 
over Moses, over the old covenant, over the old priesthood, over the old sacrifices. But the point being today in this chapter and leading through the rest of the book is that Jesus only is the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus only is what will sustain us through the journey of faith into the promised land. While we wait for him and he is enthroned in the clouds with God, he's the only thing when we fix our eyes who will sustain us until we wait for his return. Would you pray with me?